We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in media, business, and tech. And today, joining us is Akisha Sutton-James, founder and president at Sutton Button Productions. Let's jump in and get to know Keisha. Keisha, welcome. How are you? I'm fantastic. How about you? Never better. And excited that you're here. We're real excited. (laughs) Delighted that you're having me. Thank you very much. Absolutely. So Keisha, for our listeners who don't know you, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're doing today for work and tell us a little bit about Sutton Button Productions. Sure. So I started the company a few years ago, I think 2017, 2016 rather, 2016, really in response to a moment that I found myself in where I had um, my family's business, which is inner city broadcasting. We owned radio stations in New York and across the, the nation. We had, after the uh, financial crisis, it found ourselves in bankruptcy. And that's a long story. And I'm happy to tell you all about the, all of that when we get to that kind of question. But what I realized, you know, was that the kind of the ethos of my family had really seeped into me very strongly. And that what I cared about the most was not the management work that I was doing at Inner City in terms of you know, managing different, you know, parts of our, of our company, it was really the content that, that which resonated the most with me, that which carried the most weight and felt right in my heart and soul was the act of elevating the voice of voices of African Americans that we need to be hearing from, particularly about social justice issues. So I started putting together events and content, and that's what's where, how Sutton Button was birthed around social justice issues that are relevant to African-Americans. And the first thing I did was, and this was an event, was I produced and managed the entire um, National Action Network Convention, which is Reverend Sharpton's organization, really big convention. is usually about 5,000 people come every year. And it's four days of content from like eight or nine to or 7.30 on some days in the morning until sometimes 11 o'clock at night. So panels, concurrently running panels all day long and a couple of luncheons, a big gala. It was a presidential year. So we had, you know, both Hillary and uh, Bernie, plus, you know, several members of, of uh, Tom Perez came and spoke and several, you know, kind of key democratic players. So it was just, a, it was like a fantasy come true for me. I was like, yes, I want to do that. And yes, I need to be producing more content where, you know, that's doing exactly what we had done at Inner City Broadcasting in terms of bringing forth our voices, thought leaders. So that's how it started. And it's evolved into different things. You know, last year I worked on a project that unfortunately couldn't be replicated this year because of COVID, but it was BT was the client and they put together a convening called Meta Media Entertainment Technology Alliance that brought together, you know, some of the, you know, the biggest leaders in media entertainment technology um, to examine social justice issues and, you know, look at how, what can these people in their particular um, roles and with their particular resources and platforms do to elevate um, the causes and help really solve some of the issues that, that, you know, are plaguing our community. I'm in the process um, right now, actually, my company is doing the work, but I'm actually, I recently founded uh, the Percy Sutton Foundation, 
named after my grandfather, who I'll tell you more about. Um, and Button Productions is doing some work for the foundation, and that's all around. It's a production work around uh, again social justice issues that matter most to us, um, and that are in alignment with you know the values and, and work product of my grandfather. Long answer, so I'm going to leave it right there. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, that, that's fascinating, and I, I'd love to hear more about the work and the foundation. And you know, I, I'm curious. You know, tell us a little bit about where you were born and where you were raised, and, and tell us a little bit about uh, growing up and what family life was like. So you happen to catch me right after I've come out of the building I grew up in in Harlem. I'm literally sitting in the driveway of 10 West 135th Street, Lenox Terrace, between Fifth and Lenox, on uh, in in Harlem. New York. And that's where I was raised. And it's home. My mom still lives in the same apartment that I grew up in. I grew up one floor below my grandparents, which was a blessed experience. I was the only grandchild for 25 years. So I was spoiled. Um, my grandfather <laughs> called me the love of his life next to his wife, which was really sweet, kind of not so nice to his children, but very sweet to me. <laughs> Grandkids get, you know, special treatment. So, you know, I grew up really, I didn't even realize how unusual it was, I guess, until I got older. But I grew up, frankly, at the knee of a civil rights activist. My grandfather was a Tuskegee Airman and an attorney. He was Malcolm X's attorney. He was uh, a New York State senator, Manhattan Borough president at a time when the Manhattan Borough president had extraordinary powers. He was the most senior African-American in all of New York state and went thorough president at that time because they had, they were, um, he was on the, on the board of estimates, which controlled both land use and budget in New York, us in, in New York city for president being of Manhattan being on that committee and having those kinds of powers was really close to being mayor back then, much more um, influence and power than the office holds now. Let's see, he started our family's business, Inner City Broadcasting. Um, the purpose of going, oh, I'm sorry, rewind, he was also a freedom writer. So this moment in which, you know, we've lost John Lewis, who was a friend of his, and kind of, you know, they worked alongside one another in the movement is particularly heavy because, you know, just the passing of these folks who have done so much to lay the groundwork and make it possible for us to, you know, sit here on our Zoom, on our podcast. It just weighs heavily on my heart. But uh, started our business, which in particular has laid the groundwork for us to be sitting on a podcast. He decided that uh, he felt that Black ownership of what they called mass communications back in the 70s was the next frontier of the Black civil rights movement. And specifically, you know, went into into radio, bought ra- our radio station specifically in order to, in order for us to have a voice that authentically represented us as African Americans, so that we could actually hear from us and not somebody who, who you know, white folks think we should be hearing from, um, you know, hear from voices that our community is actually um, lifting up, hear our perspectives in you know in an authentic manner, shape the conversation around the issues that impact our community, and thereby shape the political outcomes. So it was very intentional, you know, the use of 
media to impact politics was very intentional. And so we owned WBLS and WLIB for 40 something years, the number one station in New York City for, for many, many, many years. Uh, the literally the one and only black owned FM radio station in the number one market in the country ever in history is WBLS was our radio station. And then went on to, you know, we bought radio stations around the country and did similar stuff really kind of influenced a whole lot of people and a whole lot of things uh, in terms of. I mean, that, that's what I was going to say and think like, you know, when I think of, you know, I'm 40, 44 and, you know, growing up, you know, WBLS was, I mean, that was the radio station in my house, right? Like, you know, when you were younger, Keisha, and growing up, did you, did you realize sort of like the impact that your grandfather had in terms of, you know, just the influence of the number of things that like, you know, I could have let you just go on forever and ever and ever and talk about the, no, 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 I'm just, it's actually a good thing. Like the impact that your grandfather has had in many different areas. It's just amazing. I was just curious to know, like, as you were growing up, did you realize that early on what was going on there or, uh, you know, later, was that a little bit later on once you got older? So I will say I I didn't fully understand his impact until after he died 10 years ago. Mm. Um, I really didn't. It wasn't until things happened like, um, you know, he was one of the founding, uh, he was the senior member, as they told me, the senior member of the Gang of Four, Charlie Rangel, Mayor Jenkins, Basil Patterson, State Senator mm-hmm. Basil Patterson, and my grandfather. He was the strategist. He was the leader. I didn't know that. I thought he was their peer. <laughs> and they yeah. set me straight after he died. And they said, oh, no, Keisha. He led us. He told us what to do. He said, you are going to run for this and you're, this one's going to run for that when he passed. And then attorney general, first black attorney general of the United States of America, Eric Holder called us and said he wanted to speak at his funeral. I was like, okay, sure. Mm. <laughs> you can speak. And then he said, I stand on Percy Sutton's still broad shoulders. There would be no Eric Holder if there were no Percy Sutton. I uh-huh. worked for him. I admired him. I wanted to be like him. I didn't, I didn't know. I literally didn't know he worked for, for my grandfather. In terms of the culture and stuff then, I, I had, I mean, I was in the midst of big, beautiful black culture, you know, big, beautiful. <laughs> when he was Manhattan Borough president, he pretty much started the New York City Marathon, made it a five borough marathon, whereas it used to run with just within um, uh, Central Park. And he was the person who got it, made it happen that it would, it was the first marathon in the world that would run throughout the entirety of a city. All other marathons in the world are modeled after the New York City Marathon. Wow. And it would run right by our, on the other side of this building, <laughs> or by our apartment building. It passes by our apartment building. And I remember just being out there with, oh, that's another thing we did. It was the first people, the first people in media to do this. We started the, um, what's now known, uh, the street street teams and the bands, we were the first ones to do that. So we would be out there with our band playing Ain't No Stopping Us Now. And I was, you know, you know, it was our song. It was a station song. It was a marathon song. And I was just soaking up all this amazing Black culture. And I don't know, it just felt like I was living up Black culture. But later on, when I, after the Apollo, I grew up, you know, we bought the Apollo and produced the television show, Showtime at the Apollo. 
And I went off to college. I was like, yeah, this is kind of extraordinary what I just, what I lived through. <laughs> so that's the answer to your question. I, I started to get a sense when I went off to college of just how special this life that I had that I was born into was and how special he was. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and, uh, earlier on, you, you mentioned sort of your love for producing content, right? Is that sort of where that passion comes from, from your grandfather? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, again, that was the purpose of the, of the, you know, the the station, um, Mm -hmm. was to elevate our voices. And then the other thing that's perhaps unique about him, I don't know, he had a really universal perspective in terms of us black folks. He he didn't see us in any particular, you know, singular lane and nor he nor did he clearly see himself in any particular singular lane. So professionally, you know, he was the military, he was an attorney, he was a politician, he was an entrepreneur, businessman, blah, 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 blah. He similarly understood that, you know, all expressions of our blackness, our culture, our art, our music, our business, our science, you know, these were, if any threat to any one of those was a threat to us and our humanity, period. Mm. So it was important, you know, he bought African-American art to just support the artist. He didn't really, you know, say, uh, he wasn't like astute. He was not, a, you know, he was not an, uh, I don't know, aficionado, if you will, but he's like, that bearded guy, he's good. I'll, I'll buy that. Just, I want to support him and, you know, things like that. He, he understood the value of our culture. And that definitely, you know, made its way through to me. Gotcha. Okay. And as you're creating content and and running your production company, do you feel any extra pressure to sort of live up to what your grandfather did? Always my whole entire life. Yeah. Mm. I have without question, in my opinion, been thwarted by, you know, the shoes. And, and, And frankly, I do not at all envy my dad and his sister. I can't imagine being his child. I have the great fortune of being a grandchild and there, you know, being some, some distance, but there are huge shoes to fill. I mean, yeah. when, when you see that level of excellence up close day to day to day to day, and you, and you see them, ooh, I mean, the discipline that went into what he did, the mind, the brain, his ability to whip out sentences with just an, eloquence that was astounding so much of what he did he did at a brilliant level of excellence and yeah no absolutely when you grow up you know with these kinds of examples and he wasn't the only one I was around you know it's you become very afraid of failure uh, you know afraid Mm. that whatever step whatever move you're going to make if you mess it up it'll be you know you don't have the grace you know from the people if you will to fall on your face because people are watching. How do you try to balance that, right? Because in, in some respects, yeah, you, you definitely want to honor your grandfather, right? And your family name, right? But at the same time, you, you need to be your own person as well too, right? So how, how, do, you, how do you balance that? I don't know. I don't think I'm doing it very well. <laughs> I'm <telling you> the <laughs> truth. I don't know. Like, I mean, some of it is just taking chances I don't know. You get to a point as, as where I guess where I am in life. I'm in my forties and you get to the point where you're just like, especially looking at his example, cause he was a real risk taker where you realize that you've got to take the risk that, you know, you're put on this planet to live out your 
particular purpose. And then if you're not doing that, you're not, you know, expressing God's will. And that's for me, it's just like, okay, where my biggest challenge is, I'm like, is I am always going, okay, God, is this what you, you envision for me? Is this particular step? Is this particular path? You know, what you envision for me? Because that's the other thing is being someone who has, a, you know, a lot of access. There's a lot of things that one could do. Right. Not that I have the, my little sister, by the way, is brilliant. She has the capacity to do just that anything. She's so smart and skilled that like she could walk into any room and do anything and just ace it. I don't have that. I'm not that gal. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do have a lot of things that I particularly, you know, that I might be able to do. And so it's always just kind of trying to center myself and, and figure out what it is that I'm meant to do. And that's what to me is most important is like, each of us is on this planet to do something. So what is it that I am meant to do and how am I meant to make an impact and contribute and move, you know, this move forward in this continuum that is the black struggle, frankly, and, you know, improve the world and us as a people um, in a way that's uniquely mine. Hmm. You know, Keisha, you know, a tremendous, tremendous story about family, service, right? Impact community contributions. What about you, Keisha? You know, what are some areas that, that you are really proud of, you know, personally that you feel really proud of in terms of sort of accomplishments and things like that? Um, so there's a few, but the first thing that came to mind actually, strangely, was I'm really proud of the person who I've been able to be through all of the challenges that I've had in life, I am proud of myself for not being defeated by, you know, some things, certain, I'll say, uh, circumstances in life and demons. So in terms of demons, I, as I said, you know, this it's challenging growing up, you know, being the child or grandchild of someone big and famous and very accomplished. Mm-hmm. Um, I also suffer from anxiety and depression, actually, something I've never really shared publicly. And the last, frankly, so the first thing that came to mind was the bankruptcy process um, was extraordinarily challenging. Here we were. I had just joined the company the year before. So I left my world. I, I worked in banking at JP Morgan. And I came to our business like within a year of the financial crisis. So it wasn't at all what I envisioned life was going to be like. And here I was having a hand in the loss of one of the most impactful, you know, media businesses, Black-owned media businesses ever in history, a business that for which our ownership meant a great deal in terms of community impact, understanding that while the radio station would still be, you know, have the same staff and do many of the same things that we had set in place, Understanding that it would not be the same because it would not have the culture that we had established and it would not have the uh, resources and the focus on our community that we had because the other owners, frankly, were just financial owners. They were not in this for the same purpose that we were in it. This all happened within, it started um, the year after my grandfather passed. He had had a really tough, you know, three year decline in which my mother and I, my grandmother, mother and I were his caregivers. 
And then after that happened, my dad fell down and he was paralyzed about a year and a half after we lost the company. So I'll say first thing I was super proud of was just being able to navigate going through the bankruptcy, which was incredibly complex. And I was way out of my depth, if you will. I was dealing with financial investors on the other side who, frankly, you know, they smell blood. They're, they're sharks. They smell blood and they are trying to take a bite out. And they gobbled us up and it was ugly, very ugly and painful, not only because obviously we were losing all of our personal wealth, but we were losing that which was the voice of our people and kind of the beacon of black radio um, nationally. We syndicated Steve Harvey. We had syndicated, you know, Wendy Williams. We had literally, like, not that they were the most brilliant voices of black people, (laughs) but they were, you know, high-impact voices. Anyway, going through that and staying sane and not cursing every single person I could find out, Mm. not cursing anybody out, was in and of itself an accomplishment. And it reminds me of, I'm going to mess up the quote, but the James Baldwin quote that, you know, being black in America is, I think by definition, rage. I don't know. Yeah, I messed up the quote. Um, But the point is, just being black in America is an experience that if you just survive it, is exceptional. If you survive the challenges that we have to live through being black in America and, and stay sane and not go cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. That's an accomplishment. Anyway, then my grand, my dad fell. He was paralyzed. Then I had breast cancer. I've just been through a lot of things. That And then I, my grandmother was ill and she passed. And then right within two, I'm sorry, a, few, a month before my grandmother passed, we had a fire in my apartment. I've been through some crazy stuff and I'm still here. <laughs> so you were probably asking about a professional accomplishment. But frankly, the fact that I am still here and I'm still sane and that I'm still working and trying and and trying to, you know, support and, and elevate my community is probably my biggest accomplishment. Next to the fact that I have two brilliant children, of course. That's awesome. <laughs> no, thank you for your courage and taking us through that. That's real life, right? It's real life. Thank you for sharing that with, with us and, and with all of our listeners. And you mentioned right you know, your two kids and you know, sort of the work-life balance we kind of talked about a little bit, or what's that kind of like right now, especially through these extraordinary times? What's that like sort of balancing all of that and then going through the headlines and then going through just living today and and, and take us through that as, as, as a mother? Yeah, it's been really hard. You know, again, I live in Harlem, a hot spot, also right across you know, for the bridge from the, you know, South Bronx, major, major, major hot spot. New York City was just, it was bananas. You know, mm-hmm. you guys, you know, it was very intense. I live on the corner of 116th and St. Nicholas, which intersects with 17th with Avenue. So it's three major, well, 116th and 7th Avenue, Avenue or Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard are, are two major through ways, if you will, not through ways, but major avenue streets. So there was a lot of, you know, ambulance and fire activity. It was so loud, constant, 
just constant ambulances. Mm-hmm. And it was the most traumatizing thing I've ever lived through. I never felt nearly as traumatized with 9-11, you know, living here in New York for 9-11 as well. Mm-hmm. I knew early on that it would be, that it would end, having spent as much time as I had in, with my elder care of my, both my grandparents and my dad, I, as much as I had spent in hospitals, I, you know, I knew very intimately kind of what the makeup of hospital staff was. And I knew that we black and brown people were going to be hit particularly hard. Obviously, same thing. You know, I remember that first, the week of March 10th, I went to the grocery store. So back up just a tad, my husband's dad passed away right before COVID. So he was not at all in the mindset to like transition to pandemic mode. (laughs) And he was like, we don't need all this. We don't need all that. I was like, are you crazy? (laughs) So I was the one that was like up in the Target and the wall, you know, all of this, the Target and the Costco and the fairway and trying to buy every supply on Amazon. I was going mad just trying to get everything because I was freaking out and, you know, just definitely afraid. I felt like COVID was right outside my window. Like mm. I, I felt like I couldn't open the window or I would catch coronavirus. And it was really, so it was, it was traumatizing for, for myself, traumatizing for one of my daughters who is still barely wants to go outside. Very rarely. She just went out this weekend and saw one of her girlfriends, but it was the second or third time she's seen one of her girlfriends since this whole thing started in March and we're in mid July right now. So it's been, it has been very intense. The schooling was, you know, was tough, but my girls, their school didn't, I thought an exceptional job. It was mostly the fear of disease and having been a breast cancer, you know, being a breast cancer survivor and an asthmatic, I was really scared. And then also knowing, you know, with my dad with paralysis and my mom and her had blood pressure. And blood. It was just scary, very scary, traumatizing is the answer. Yeah. Describing all, all the things that you are, you know, you're a wife, you're a mother, you're the founder and president of a, of a successful company. You know, where do you draw inspiration from? Tell us a little bit about that. Um, Ancestors, really. That's it, plain and simple. You know, obviously my grandfather, but as tough as it is, and honestly, it is, I think, in in many ways tougher for us, this generation, just because of the lack of family and community support. You know, that we no longer have that work that we, you know, had in years past. Obviously, I have to think back to many, many years past when our families were non-existent because they were being decimated by that institution called slavery. So I don't know. I just, my inspiration is, you know, if they were able to get up every day and be brutalized and still stay alive and still, you know, just try to invest in hope for the future, then I can too. Like if my ancestors could resist to the point that they stayed alive and invested in the next generation by instilling hope, by educating themselves, by investing in their communities. So my grandfather's dad was, from by all accounts, the real deal. Like they all, everybody in my, my dad and grandfather's generation say, you think Percy Sutton's amazing. You should have. You should have known F.J. Sutton, Samuel Johnson Sutton, who was an educator and an entrepreneur. He built the only fully appointed 
black high school in San Antonio, Texas. So it had all the same, you know, science labs and the same gymnasium and equipment and all the same stuff that the white kids had. He built that in San Antonio, Texas. He was like two foot two and dark as tar and ended up serving on the board of the white bank in San Antonio. Wow. Like if he could do that <laughs> and, and if he could simultaneously be working with the NAACP and, you know, meeting, hosting W.B. Dubois when he came to town and hosting George Washington Carver, sorry. And, you know, investing in, you know, black and at that time just Mexican politicians and just kind of building black and Mexican coalitions in San Antonio in the 40s, then I can get up and do what I got to do. That's where I get my inspiration. I hear you there. I hear you there. Keisha, a couple months ago, you and I chatted right before you went on vacation and you said you were going to be doing some reading. What do you read these days? What's on your list? What's on your bookshelf list? (laughs) I've just read such amazing books. I'm so glad that you asked. Okay. So I read read a piece of historical fiction. My husband is from, from Columbia, South Carolina. And I read this book called, there's three books that I've that, are, that I just read that I just cannot stop talking about. That book was called The Invention of Wings. It's written by the same woman that wrote uh, Secret Life of Bees, Sue Monk Kid. And this book is about a white woman who was born into a super elite planter class. And her, her dad was not only a slaveholding planter, but he was a judge. And this is a real person um, mm. in... 17 and 1800s in Charleston. And she went on to become an abolitionist. And then because of her being an abolitionist and being kind of thwarted because she was a woman, she became one of the premier voices, really the, the first voices in the suffrage movement. And so I frankly hadn't really understood the impact of the abolition movement on the suffrage movement until frankly I read this and then started doing some more research. So that was an incredible book. It's so good, so beautifully written. And but the the reason it's extraordinary is it she was thrusted into her abolitionism that's mm. <laughs> um, by her having been given a young slave girl when she was eleven years old and resisting and protesting and her family, you know, losing it and coming down really hard on her. And the book is written from the perspective of it alternates chapter by chapter from the two girls' voices over 35 years as they become women. Wow. Uh, it's a brilliant book. That was one. The second one, oh my goodness. The second one <laughs> is called Black Fortune. It's by a brother named Shimani Wills. And it's about the first six black millionaires in America. Wow. Um, it was so damn good. And then the third book I just read after that was, and you have to read, Okay, can I just give you a little smidget on on one of them? This sister named Mary Ellen Pleasant, who was born free in Philadelphia. Her parents sent her in the 1800s, 1700s, 1800s. Parents sent her to, as was customary, sent her to school in Nantucket uh, uh, to live with these white folks in Nantucket. And she was supposed to be going to a school for free black girls. Instead of sending her to school, as these white people were supposed to have done, they had her work in their store. But she made the most of that experience and really studied people and studied business and studied how things were done. 
And fast forward, she marries a man, he dies, leaves a black man who was free. He's an abolitionist. Left her money. She goes and moves out west, becomes a, around the um, gold rush. The gold rush, Moves out to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Moves out to San Francisco and becomes a, a metals trader. She buys gold in bulk, sells it down to, uh, she sells it in Mexico, brings back even larger quantities of silver and sells that all throughout San Francisco, becomes, you know, super wealthy, funds the John Brown uh, revolution, attempted revolt, if you will, loses all her money. Oh, I'm sorry. She also started a compound in Canada where she was housing free runaway, um, runaway slaves. They started a little militia. They bought all these guns. These are black women. And she, they bought all this land, started this compound, bought all this land, and, and they were going and extracting runaway slaves from, from uh, slave catchers as well and saying, no, 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 this one's ours. He's ours. Don't even think about coming after it. She was so bad. And then the, my favorite part, she lost, she lost all her money in the John Brown um, funding, John Brown's revolt, went back to this woman who had been independent and, you know, on her own went back in service to white folks. She went, went back out to San Francisco and worked for this white family running their household, saved all her money, built all her money back up, built up all these boarding houses, became the, the hub of, of the political life of San Francisco and elected the next governor. <laughs> wow. <Mary Ellen Park. laughs> so Black Fortune is the second book. And the third was, I just reread the uh, narr- Frederick Douglass's narrative of a slave, which... I mean, I, I don't need to even say anything. It was just, it was so damn good. And this is what I'm reading right now. The history of black business in America to 1865. Wow. So you remember the panel where we met earlier this year, right? Do you remember yes. Maria Weaver, who was Weaver. on? Yes. Do you know yes. that? <laughs> yes. I don't agree because you brought up Frederick Douglass, right? Like. <laughs> so I'm part of a group called Daughters of the Movement that I don't know if we talked about, but anyway, no. we're all we are all daughters and granddaughters of civil rights activists and politicians and you know funders of the movement movement and artists in the movement. So it's Gina yeah. Belafonte, Tara Belafonte's daughter, and Hesna Muhammad, who's Ruby D and Ossie Davis's daughter, and Stacey Lynch, who's Bill Bill Lynch's daughter. And Bill um, was, for those who don't know, was. The, they called him the Rumpel Genius. He was the mastermind behind the Mayor, Mayor Dinkins' campaign, as mm. well as did a lot of work with Nelson Mandela on the you know deconstruction, if you will, of apartheid. Also, uh, Diane Carroll's daughter, Suzanne Kay, Ilyasa Shabazz, Malcolm X, and Betty Shabazz's daughter, me. Did I forget anybody? Anyway, I was telling Maria about this, and I was like, we would love to have you, because we have been doing, had been doing, we've taken a break right now, a the conversation series called Real Talk on you know Zoom and Facebook Live, and and she said, well, I I don't. She told me about this because we're in a Jack and Jill chapter together, and she told me she was Frederick Ellis's daughter, but she doesn't tell anybody about it. I was like, what? <laughs> you don't tell anybody? Yeah. But now I'm gonna leave that to other family members. We had her on the podcast a month ago, and she didn't yeah. bring it up at all. <laughs> <laughs> and then you saw the piece. You yeah. Saw the piece yeah. Yeah. I was like, check out. Video. And then she, uh, <laughs> no, she did. She did say, "Oh man, I, I'm sorry, I didn't bring this up." But uh, shout out to Maria. That that conversation shout was to Maria. And she is. She, she is just a wonderful person. She really is, yeah. and she's just she's a lovely heart. I've known her for some time. She's a 
solid sister, and I couldn't believe it. I had known I'd known her for years, and I didn't. Oh wow! Didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> this is, yeah, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Keisha, I, I do have a little bit of a fun question to ask you that I love asking all the guests that we have on the podcast, which is give me give me the top three apps on your phone that you use. You can't name email, text messaging, or calendar. Well, and okay, um, <laughs> there's so many. Uh, Spotify for working out, listening to my music, obviously Netflix. Okay, top three. That's so hard. There's so many. <laughs> I use the dictionary app a lot, actually, because I always want to find just the right words when I when I write. I also I do yeah. some writing, so I use it for thesaurus a lot. That was three. IG, of course, four. Yeah. Sorry, there's That's those are good. probably <laughs> and the weather the weather channel app is clutch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that was five. There's more though. <laughs> Amazon, of course. Yeah, there you go. Instacart in a pandemic. (laughs) Instacart for sure. So we're at seven. All right. Shut me up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Keisha, thanks for joining us. And just in case anyone else wants to learn some more about your apps, because we might be able to get to 10 or nine, (laughs) 11. (laughs) Where can our listeners find you to sort of keep the conversation going? Most definitely on Instagram. And well, I'm barely on Twitter. So I'm, as you can tell, I'm kind of on the loquacious side. I can't keep my stuff to 140 characters or 280 or anything. So IG, Facebook, K Sutton James is my hand is my handle. I write for Medium as well. I write mm. for Medium. I publish things on Medium. No, I don't write for Medium. I publish things on Medium. I just published a piece today, in fact, called "America's White Lie: The Liar in Chief and the Pandemic That Is Killing America." So yes, um, that's how you can find me. I'm going to go read that one. Please do. Thanks. And yeah. Thanks so much for joining us again. We had a lot of fun. And all you listeners out there, thank you for joining us. And you can find us where you find all of your audio. Just search for Minority Report Podcast. Thanks. Thank you guys for having me. 